Welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. I'm glad you're here today. And um, we've got a little journey, no pun intended. You'll figure that out in just a minute, well, why that's a pun. But uh, we've got a little journey to go on today. I'd like to go on with you today. If you've got a copy in the Scriptures, I wish you would turn to Numbers chapter 33. We're going to read almost all of this chapter together. And you'll find it very... Uh, intriguing that I chose this chapter, but I hope the Lord will speak to us today. Let me just start off by um, reminding you, my wife has certain things that she tries to remind me of, you know, I don't know that it's in her mind that she does this, this systematically, but about once a month, there are certain things that I need to be reminded of words or phrases that I'm not supposed to say anymore because we live in a new day. Uh, you know, just things I'm supposed to do and I think I'm not supposed to, she doesn't say it every day, but you know, once she'll say, don't drink Diet Cokes and you know, just different, different things that David Cole, he's real concerned about that. And so every, about once a month, he'll put a, 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 an alternative to a Diet Coke on my front doorstep just as a little subtle reminder uh, that I ought not drink them. And um, when I die, I promise you I will never drink another one. Um, or maybe we will. You never know. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so it's, it, it, that's the difference in nagging and in reminding. Nagging is every day. Reminding. We all need to be reminded of things, right? That's good. That's good for us. Uh, it's good for me. Um, um, all right, now, I promise it's all tight. Tight as a drum. Um, um, I want to remind you, I try not to do it every Sunday, but I want to remind you regularly, you need to read your Old Testament. It's a big deal that you read the Old Testament. I had a professor in college that wouldn't call it the Old Testament. He called it the Older Testament. And his point was that if you call it the Old Testament, that somehow makes it not as pertinent or important or valuable as the New Testament. An old car versus a new car. He didn't like that. So he would call it the Older Testament. I don't care what you call it. But we ought to read it. Even the hard parts. Even the parts that are more of a challenge for us. We ought to read it because it's important to God. Or he wouldn't put it in there. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Um, dude, I am so sorry. I can use, you use this thing right here. Use it for a minute. I'll get you that of them. Um, let me read to you two verses real quick as we get started. Paul says twice... Remember, repetition for Paul or for the Lord Jesus is a big deal. If he says something twice, that means I really want you to get it. So Paul says this twice. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, These things, and he's talking about the things in the Old Testament. These things happened to the Israelites as examples for us. They were written down to warn us and instruct us who live at the end of the age. That's us. And then he says in Romans 4, 
Such things were written down, such things, the things going on in the Old Testament, such things were written down in the Scriptures long ago to teach us, and they give us hope and it fulfilled as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled in our lives. Twice Paul says, God wrote the Old Testament to help us, to encourage us, to give us hope, to give us wisdom. You can move around. You're a mover. Yeah, I'm something. All right. Sorry, guys. We good? Yep. Okay. All right. Cool. Thank you. Um, Okay. Um, Don't forget that the Old Testament is the Bible that Jesus read. The Old Testament is the Bible that Peter and John and Paul read and studied. The Old Testament is the Bible that the writers of the New Testament incorporated in their New Testament epistles. It's actually, the Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament writers wrote all the things that were in the New Testament. So, this, what God is trying to say to us, we will miss it. We will miss what God is trying to say to us in the New Testament if we are not students of the Old Testament. And so I want to just encourage you uh, with that. Therefore, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage today in Numbers 33. And uh, let me give you just a little background. Um, The Israelites are at the Jordan River. And the promised land is right on the other side. I mean, it's, they, can t- they, can, they can spit on it, as my daddy would say. They can spit on the promised land from where they were. They can see it. They can smell it. They're gathered there, and they're getting ready to go over to the other side. Um, and Moses writes down at the end of Numbers and all of Deuteronomy, he writes down some instructions for the people of God as they prepare to enter the promised land. And this is part of that preparation to enter the promised land. Part of the preparation to enter into a new phase of life, according to God and Moses, is to stop periodically and look backwards. And that's what Moses is doing. He's saying, y'all are about to enter into a new phase, an unbelievable phase. You're about to enter into the promised land. Part of entering that well and embracing that well is to stop and look backwards. So that's what we're going to look at today. Y'all remember, just in case you need a little reminding, uh, 1,500 years before Jesus was born, God raised up a man named Moses and sent him down to Egypt to free God's people from slavery. Now let me say that one more time. 1,500 years before Jesus was born, God sent Moses down to Egypt 
to give freedom to his people. Say one more time. Y'all, don't, y'all, y'all are really not listening well. 1,500 years before Jesus was born, God sent Moses down to Egypt to give freedom to his people. The optimum word in that sentence that I just spoke is the word freedom. If you, don't, if you and I don't get that, if we don't get that, that that's why God sent Moses, he sent him to give the people of God freedom. If we don't get that, we will be very confused and frustrated and discouraged about all the things that God told Moses to write down in the Pentateuch. If we don't say that everything that God told Moses to write down, write down, wrote down to write down in the Pentateuch, it ultimately might not be. You might not see it at first glance. You might have to wrestle with it and dig deep and do some studying and some research and some some, uh, comparisons with other passages. But at the end of the day, what Moses wrote down in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, he wrote it down as a contribution to the overall goal of giving the people of God freedom. Not bondage, not rules, not ceremony, not guilt, not fear, not uh, punishment or discipline in the negative sense of discipline. Got nothing that God wrote down or that, that God told Moses to write down, write down in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. All of that, those, what about those priests and the priestly garments and the sacrifices and the fabrics and the tabernacle and the, uh, uh, all the stuff? In the, the, I'm telling you, if you'll study it carefully, you'll see that it was all given by God to his people as a part of helping them Not just gain freedom, but enjoying freedom. Okay? It's very important that we get that. All right? So, Moses uh, goes to Egypt. You know, the ten plagues and the battles and, uh, you know, the flies and the darkness and the blood and the, uh, the locusts and all that. And lo and behold, Moses miraculously leads the people of Israel across the Red Sea and they go on a journey, a two-month journey to Mount Sinai. Now, it didn't take two months. They wandered around and did some stuff and saw some sights and, you know, and all that kind of thing. It was really about a two-week journey. You could walk it in two weeks if you walked steadily. Uh, but it took them about two months, but they ultimately wound up uh, at Mount Sinai. And they stayed at Mount Sinai for two years. We don't know exactly 
12 months, 18 months, 24 months. We're not exactly, but it was not just a stop. They didn't stop, pitch a bunch of tents. Moses run up on the top of the mountain, grab some Ten Commandments and run down, uh, back down to the people and then light out like you're going through a wind at McDonald's. It wasn't like that. They stayed there for probably two years, give or take, and not only did God give Moses the Ten and so there was a lot of team, uh, uh, the majority of the Pentateuch there. And so there was a lot of teaching, a lot of training, a lot of discipling that was going on. Then they left Mount Sinai and they traveled 11 days, 11 days from Mount Sinai to the Jordan River. Only 11 day journey from Mount Sinai to the Jordan River. Okay? God said, okay, y'all want to go in? Ready to go in and enjoy your inheritance? Enjoy what I promised uh, Abraham and Je- uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob uh, hundreds and hundreds and 500 years earlier? You ready? They sent those 12 spies in. 12, uh, the spies came back and they all 12 said, Woo, great land, wonderful land. <laughs> this is incredible. But 10 of the 12 spies said, we'll never, we'll never get it. The power of God that it took to deliver us from Egypt is not enough power to get us into the promised land. We will never defeat those giants. We'll never conquer those giants. And because of that, that that, that discouraged the people. The people rebelled against God. They all murmured and complained and they said, we'll never get in. God is not great enough. God could defeat the gods of Egypt, but God can't defeat the gods of the promised land. That's what they were saying to God. And God said, okay. You lose your opportunity and you got to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So an 11-day journey from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai to the Jordan River turned into a 40, well, a 38 because they'd spent two years at Mount Sinai, a 38-year journey. You think about that, okay? So, um, let me read this to you real quickly if I can. You stay with me. Forgive me for mispronouncing some of this, but that's okay. If you try it, you might mispronounce some of it also, okay? This is Numbers 33. This is the route that the Israelites followed as they marched out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's direction, Moses kept a record, a written record of their progress. It was very important their journey through Moses write down a record of their journey through the wilderness. These are the stages of their march identified by the different places where they stopped along the way. They set out from the city of Ramses, that's in Egypt, in early spring on the 15th day of the first month on the morning after the first Passover celebration. The people of Israel left, it says defiantly, that's not wrong, uh, but you could also equally translate that word defiantly, boldly, confidently, optimistically, excitedly. I like the word, the, oh, the best translation I found was, 
The people of Israel left Egypt with their heads held high. Isn't that lovely? Slaves that for hundreds of years had to look, you could never look in your master's face. Never. So for hundreds of years, the Israelites were slaves of the Egyptians and they had to look down. But when God says it's time to leave, God says you look up. And notice what it says next. Meanwhile, the Egyptians were burying all of their firstborn sons whom the Lord had killed the night before. The, gods, the, the Lord had defeated the gods of Egypt that night with great acts of judgment. Do you see the picture Moses is wanting you and I to get? While the Israelites who used to be slaves are marching out with their heads held high, the Egyptians who were the masters are now digging holes in the ground. The, the ones that used to dig and look down are now walking out with their heads held high. The ones who used to be superior, now they're bent over digging holes to bury their children. It's an incredible picture of when God, again, we often see God as someone that wants to oppress and control and beat down. And you're just a sorry, low down, good for nothing uh, sinner. And, and I'm going to put all these laws and rules and burdens on you. But you, gotta, you just walk, oh my gosh, all this heavy religion. That's not at all the image that the Bible really gives of God. He's freeing people. He's lifting people. God's not beating people down. He's not weighing people down. God is freeing people and lightening their load rather than making it more of a burden. The other thing that that passage reminds me of real quickly, do you notice where the battle really took place? You read Exodus 1 through 12, you could get confused and think that the battle that day or that time in Egypt was between Moses and Pharaoh. Or you could think that the battle was between Israel and Egypt. Right? But that's not what Moses says. Whom the Lord had killed the night before. The Lord had defeated the gods of Egypt that night with great acts of judgment. Where was the real battle? The real battle was between the God of Israel the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Pentateuch, and the gods of Egypt. That's the real battle. The real battles of life are not the battles that you and I are fixated on and burdened down with. The real battles of life take place in the heavenly realms between the God of the Bible and the gods of this world. And you and I have got to decide who's the most powerful. What is the testimony of God's Word as to who is the God that you want to hit your wagon to? That's the decision that we've got to make. What God am I going to hitch my wagon to? And the testimony of the Scriptures 
would, would be weighted, in, weighted strongly in one direction. Okay? Let me go on. After leaving Ramses, the Israelites set up camp at Sukkoth. Then they left Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. They left Etham and turned back toward Pihirath opposite Baal Zephon and camped at Migdal. Um, all of these places that I'm reading to you, there are things going on. There are needs and problems and thirsts and failures and rebellions and disobedience and thirst and hunger and uh, 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 sickness is going on. There's all kinds of things going on in each of these places. They left Pi-Hahiroth Pi, and crossed the Red Sea into the wilderness beyond. Then they traveled for three days into Etham into the Etham wilderness, and they camped at Marah. They ran out of water there, just so you know. They left Marah and camped at Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. That means nothing to you and me. But if you're a desert nomad, wandering through the desert, seeing springs and palm trees is a very, very big deal. Uh, they left Elam and camped beside the Red Sea, they left the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of sin. Don't, the, the word sin there has nothing to do with morality, okay? It just happens to be the, the name of that place. They left the wilderness of sin and they camped at Dovka. They left Dovka and camped at Elush. They left Elush and camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Again, they're running out. They, 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 you mean people that follow God? face times of drought and great thirst? You mean people that follow God at times open their cupboards and they're empty? Oh, no, 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 no. I thought people, all my TV evangelists tell me that if I follow God and I open my cupboards, gold doubloons will spill out of there like Niagara Falls. That's what happens to people that follow God. They're, they're always healthy and wealthy and rich. And yet, the people that followed God in the wilderness, in this testimony, they faced times of hunger and thirst, attack, need, problems. Uh, they left the wilderness of Sinai. They camped at Kibroth Hatapha. And they left Kibroth Hatapha and camped at Hazareth. They left Hazareth and camped at Rithma. They left Rithma and camped at Ramon Perez. They left Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. And I could tell you events that took place at every one of these places. I'll mention a few in a minute. They left Rib, uh, Libna and camped at Rissa. They left Rissa and they camped at Kahilatha. They left Kahilatha and camped at Mount Zephyr. They left Mount Zephyr and they camped at Harada. They left Harada and camped at Machilath. They left Machilath and camped at Tahath. They left Tahath and camped at Tira. They left Tira and camped at Mithka. They left Mithka and camped at Hashmona. They left Hashmona and camped at Mazareth. They left Mazareth and camped at Beni Jakin. They left Beni Jakin and camped at Hor Haggad. They left that place and they camped at Jotbatha. They left Jotbatha and camped at Abrana. They left Abrana and they camped at Ezion Geber. Sorry. They left Ezion Geber and camped at Kadesh. 
in, in the wilderness of Zen. It was there at Kadesh that uh, Miriam, Aaron's sister, died. Um, it was a very sad time for Moses and Aaron. They left Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the border of Edom. And while they were there at the foot of Mount Hor, Aaron the priest was directed by the Lord to go up to the mountain, top of the mountain, and there he died. This happened at midsummer on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after Israel's departure from Egypt. Aaron was 123 years old when he died. Okay, let me just finish this real quickly. At that time, the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard that the people of Israel were approaching his land. Meanwhile, the Israelites left Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. They left uh, Zalmona and camped at Punan. They left Punan and camped at Oboth. They left Oboth and camped at Abarim uh, on the border of Moab. They left Abarim and camped at Dibangad. They left Dibangad and camped at Almon Diblathium. They left Almond Diblathium and camped in the mountains east of the river near Mount Nebo. They left the mountains east of the river and camped on the plains of Moab beside the Jordan River across from Jericho. Along the Jordan River they camped from Beth Jeshimoth as far as the meadows of, the, uh, of Acacia on the plains of Moab. I read all that for a purpose. God has things that he wants us to understand and be reminded of about what a journey with him looks like. And one of the reasons that we get frustrated, I, I literally, I don't get mad very often. The idea of even thinking about flying on an airplane makes me furious. Not afraid. I, I, I love to fly. The problem is that the people that run the airlines are all liars. They tell you this and this and this and this will happen. And then when you go on your journey, it never looks like that. It never looks like that. They're just lying their bottoms off to you. Just, just right to your face, just lie to you. So it's very frustrating to begin a journey that you think's going to go one way, but it winds up going a very different way. And when that happens, we get very frustrated. And one of the reasons that God wants us to study how God led his people in the Old Testament is so that when we begin to follow him, we're not going, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. Hey, this isn't what you told me this was going to look like. You're like American Airlines. You told me my trip was going to be one way and it turned out to be another. So God wrote down the Old Testament to go, let me tell you, there's no fine print. There's no tricky wording. Let me tell you how a journey with me goes. Let me show you what a journey with me looks like. So let me just run down some of these, uh, these ideas. I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I just want to give them to you just for you to go home and think about. First thing I want you to know is this. God told Moses to write down 
what this journey looked like. Place to place to place to place. And actually, this list of towns, Moses wrote it down a number of times. This is not the only place it's listed. It was a big deal to God that his people be reminded and that they remember, that they rehearse what their journey with God through the wilderness looked like. How did God deal with his people when they were following him? It was a big deal. Um, I did Ashley Rimmer's uh, brother's funeral Thursday, and uh, I talked on Psalm 37, which is my favorite psalm. And in that psalm, the, uh, the psalmist David, one of the words that he uses is he said, delight yourself in the Lord. And that word delight means to ruminate, to rehearse like a cow would eat grass, chew on it a while, swallow it, and then later on he would bring it back up and he would chew on it some more, then he would swallow it and then he would bring it back up and chew on it. That's the word when it says delight yourself in the Lord. What David is saying is remember all the things that God is doing in your life. Remember what God is like. Remember the way God relates to people. Remember how God has related to you in the past. Remember these things because if you do, ultimately they will produce great joy in your life. Um, Psalm 34 says, Taste... Bless you. It's the exact same word. Delight yourself in the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That word taste, it's the word for delight. Same exact word. Rehearse who God is. And when you do, you'll start being reminded that the Lord is good. Psalms 111 says, All who delight in God ponder His works. It's really a big deal to God that we regularly be reminded of who God is and that we regularly are reminded about how God deals with his people. So what does that look like? Let me just give you some thoughts from, from the God's journey with his people from Egypt and ultimately to the Jordan River. Okay, took 40 years. But what are some things you can learn from that journey? Let me, let me just give them to you real quickly. Number one, the journey was God's idea. The Bible never says that the Israelites were in Egypt saying, Oh God, help! Oh God, where are you? Oh God, we need you to rescue... What it says is, is that the people of God, the Israelites, were moaning and complaining under the burden of slavery. It never says they were asking God for help. Do you know, wait a minute, wait a minute. Some of those Israelites, I think they found a scroll that said that they came up with the idea of recruiting Moses. Uh, and then later on it says that they came up with the idea of the ten plagues. 
And then they came up with the idea of of, uh, the, the Passover lamb. And then they came up with the idea of busting through the Red Sea. Remember, remember that scroll they found that wrote that said all that? No. None of that was their idea. The Israelites were not looking for God. God went looking for them. If you, I'm not minimizing that we have a responsibility to accept Christ as our Savior. I'm not denying that. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm telling you, and I've told you to the point of redundancy for many of you, but you're going to hear it until the day I die. I am in relationship with God primarily because God chose me. He came looking for me. He wanted me. He invited me. Um, Paul says in Romans 3 that no one seeks after God. Paul went on to say in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's so important for us to be reminded regularly that at the end of the day, Your journey with God wasn't your idea and your journey with God was created by God as a gift for you. Please know that. Why is that so important, Larry? Why is it important to put all the weight, not all the truth, but all the weight on God's part of my salvation journey? Because if he's responding, if it was his idea, then he's got to make it work. I can't carry that. I cannot, I can't carry eternity on my shoulders. It's too big. It's too overwhelming. It's too wearisome. I can't carry all of that. God says you don't have to. You standing someday in the presence of God is ultimately the result of God calling you and choosing you. The journey was God's idea. He who began a good work in you, what? He who began a good work in you, he who began a good work, he began the work. It's his idea, and we need to rest in that. Second thing I would say real quickly is this. For 40 years, the journey of God's people was just that. It was a journey. It was a journey. Somehow we've made salvation, if you will, eternal life. We've made that. Well, dead gumming, I don't even have it. Give me, give me something, Mike. Okay, here we go. Here, that'll work. Okay, we've made salvation a certificate. It's a certificate that you get, sort of like, I graduated from the third grade and I got my little certificate or or, or something like that. At the end of the day, what the Old Testament would declare to us, and Jesus did the exact same thing with the disciples. Jesus didn't walk up to Peter and say, here's your certificate of eternal life. Take care. Bye. No, no. What did Jesus say to Peter? He invited him on a journey. 
a continual journey. You don't see Jesus and the 12 disciples sitting by the, for, on the, by the Sea of Galilee uh, for weeks, for long periods of time. No, no, no. What were they doing consistently? They were moving. They were moving. They were journeying. The journey with God is a continual moving, a continual journeying. God isn't inviting us, inviting us just into a destiny, a certificate. Or he's not inviting us just into a destination. He's inviting us into a journey with him. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham, when God called him to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed God and went without knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the promised land as a stranger in a foreign land. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise that God gave Abraham. And they were looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. God is inviting you not just to experience a free pass out of hell into heaven. He's inviting you and he's inviting me into an intimate journey with him. I find it very significant that this journey was a journey where God was continually moving. God never sat still. God is now he stopped for and sometimes he was the Bible says he stopped for a day. Sometimes he stopped for a, a, a more than a day for a period. Of, but at the end of the day, the testimony of the journey of God's people with God is that it was a journey where God was continually moving. Now I want to ask you a question. Are you moving? Would you describe your relationship with God as a journey? Not just a journey of experiences, while that's true, would you also describe your relationship with God as a journey where you see God at work and you are constantly stepping over into new places, new opportunities, new challenges where you've got to exercise faith, where you've got to trust God, where you've got to take risk, where you experience at times failure and sometimes success. But it's a journey and I see God moving. I'll never forget one of my heroes made the statement. If you are a child of God and you are sitting down, metaphorically, you're, Fred, five years ago, describe your life, blah, 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 blah. Describe your life today, basically the same. Basically the same. Then what, let, me tell you, let, me, let me tell you the phrase I used to describe that. You're sitting down. If you and I are sitting down and God is constantly moving, that means somebody's getting left behind. If you and I are sitting down and God is constantly moving, that means somebody is getting left behind. Am I getting up each day 
seeing my relationship with God as a journey, and am I preparing to follow? Am I getting up and reading the map? Remember when you used to, you know, my wife and I would be driving down the road going somewhere on vacation and she's the map reader and I'm the driver and she's telling me where to go. Do I, we had a map. Do you get up every morning and read the map so that you know a little bit about where you're going and what you're going to face? Another thing about the journey that God's people had, it was difficult. That's why they were constantly complaining. People that are in relationship with God, people that are on journey with God, folks, somehow we've gotten the idea that that, if it's done right, it's the continual Disneyland. That's just pure Disney World. Why We just get up every morning, there's a Mickey Mouse parade over there, and a Space Mountain over here, and all kind of yummy food over here, and every night there's fireworks. Woo! Reading about God's people's journey with Him, it was hard, it was difficult, it was challenging every day. And you never see God apologize. People come to me all the time and they are frustrated and discouraged and ultimately at the end of the day, One of the things that they're communicating, they might not say these words, but this is what they're saying. Life ought not be this hard. Who who, who told you that? Who told you that life on this earth was supposed to be Disneyland? Now, I'm not saying that we can't make it harder than it's supposed to be with dumb, dumb decisions. I, I, I I do that. But this idea that people are not supposed to get sick, people are not supposed to lose their job, people are not supposed to fight in their marriage, people are not supposed to have challenges with their kids, people are not supposed to really listen to the news and go to bed and go, dead gummit, we live in a screwed up world. Somehow, I'm supposed to have flower beds that don't have weeds. Who said that? That's not the testimony of the journey of God's people in the Old Testament. It was continually hard and difficult and challenging, full of needs and problems and attacks and battles and wars and conflicts and power struggles and failures and barriers. Ask Moses, ask David, ask Ruth, ask Esther, ask Daniel. These are God's favorites, but their lives were filled with challenges. I would add that people that follow God, at times, they die. Remember Moses begged his father-in-law, please don't leave. Man, I need your help. I need your support. You're a blessing to me. You're wisdom for me. And He said, no, I've got to go. And he left. Miriam died. Aaron died. People that walk with God, part of that journey is people that are very important to us, that we need and depend on, and that are a source of blessing. They die, or they get transferred, or they move away. Well, that, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Who said something's wrong? Relationships 
fall apart or they drastically end at times. It's a part of the journey. Okay, we got to end. I'll say one more. You weren't paying attention as I read all those places. The reason I know you weren't is because you didn't notice something. There was a lot of repetition of those towns. I didn't just read those towns once. There was a lot of repetition. You know what that tells me? A journey with God. It's at times... It's, it's redundant. It, we repeat things. We, we, um, um, there's a lot of backtracking. Sometimes the journey is unclear. Don't you know the Israelites were going, but God, we're going toward the promised land, and it seems like we're going back toward Egypt. Or we're going uh, uh, east. Uh, that's not, we need to go north, north, north. And God says, I'm going to get you there. But at times you're going to go north when the destination is... Uh, at, the time, at times you're going to go east when the destination's north. And at times you're going to go west when the destination's north. And at times you're going to go south when the destination is, is north. Following God at times is very unclear. There are times of backtracking. Following God at times seems very wasteful. Why would you use energy and support backwards when you're trying to go forward? Do you ever feel like that in your life? What a waste. What a, ah, why did I do, what a waste to invest in that relationship. What a waste to invest in that career. What a waste to invest in that uh, that stock, uh, that retirement, whatever it might be. What a waste. Why would God ask me to go through the same things again and again and again? You know, one of the things that studying who God is in the Old Testament, what it teaches me, God is not efficient. We as Americans, we love efficiency. David Cole works for FedEx. Buddy, they're trying to shave seconds off of everything they do from flight time to warehouse uh, conveyor belt time to delivering from FedEx to home. They're shading seconds, shading seconds. God's not efficient. God's never been cost effective He's never been quick. That's not... Why would somebody that owns all the sand in the world and on all the planets, other planets of the universe, be worried about counting grains of sand? God's not efficient. God's not cost effective. God's not in a hurry. He's not quick. That's not who God is. Or, have you ever wondered why? Have you seen any of those National Geographic shows where it shows billions of flowers 
and nobody sees them. What a waste! There's, from what I've been told, there are trillions and trillions and trillions of stars in the universe that nobody enjoys. There's sea life and wildlife that they live and they die and nobody enjoys it. What a waste! That's not efficient. That's not cost effective. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, the God of God's people Israel, the God of this universe, when you own it all, you're not sitting at a little miser accountant table counting pennies. I'll bet you that Bill Gates stopped counting pennies a long time ago. Don't you bet? He doesn't count pennies. You and I are still consumed with seconds and pennies. And we are being led by the God who holds time in His hand and owns everything. I bet God shakes His head. Why in the world would you be worried about time? Why would you be worried about pennies? I've got this. I got this. There's many more, but I didn't use all my time up. Dead gummit. We'll have to do it another time. God loved the Israelites. Still does. And he said, I don't like the fact that y'all are slaves. In fact, I won't stand for it. I've got this glorious life of freedom and honor and nobility. It's going to be a life of provision and protection and blessing. It's going to be a life of adventure, a life of challenges, a life of sometimes success and sometimes failure. But it's going to be a life that you'll never forget and you'll spend an eternity uh, relishing. And I want to invite you to join me in that journey. God offered that to the people of Israel 3,500 years ago. And guess what, Anna? God is inviting you into that same journey. Miss Ann, God is inviting you into that same journey. God is inviting Fred into that same journey. He won't force you. He won't grab you by the ear and drag you along. But he sure would love for you to go. He sure would love for you to go. I want you to think about that. Okay? Let's take the Lord's Supper before we're dismissed. Uh, Michael and Terry, would y'all come help me? Oh, yes. Michael and Terry are going to be on my right and my left praying for folks. So they need to do that. Uh, Juan, would you and Sarah come help me? Thank you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Thirty-five hundred years ago, 
God told Moses to tell his people to take a little lamb, an innocent lamb, and slit its throat and drain its blood into a bowl and smear that blood on their doors. Because that night a death angel was going to go through the land of Egypt and where he saw the blood of the innocent, he was going to step back and go around that house and not touch anyone inside. Everybody's house that didn't have the blood of that innocent on it, the death angel entered in and people died. That was a prophecy. That was a picture. That was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen 1,500 years later when the true, innocent, perfect Lamb of God would be sent from heaven he would live 33 years and he would be nailed to a cross and die. And his blood was powerful enough to not only deliver himself from death, but to deliver anyone and everyone that would say, cover me in that blood too, please. So each week we eat bread and we drink wine. The bread represents the body of Jesus. The wine represents the blood of Jesus. And we declare, we believe that Jesus died for us. We want that death applied to us. We want that blood covering us because someday we'll face the death angel just like Ashley's brother did last Sunday. Last Sunday, on Saturday, but on Sunday he was dead as a doornail, laying in his bed. I had to go over there and help get him. I mean, I was an eyewitness. Thankfully, he had trusted in the Lord Jesus. And I believe with all my heart that he's with Jesus right now. I talked to him about that relationship many times. We eat bread and drink wine to remember who God is, how God relates to us, what he did for us. And we celebrate and give thanks for the indescribable gift of eternal life that God offers to all who will trust in Him. If that is your hope, that is your belief, that is your wish, that is your prayer, you come and you eat and you drink and you remember and give thanks. Okay? There will be people praying for you on the right and left. If you need prayer, go to them.